1: Hey, everybody, welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today's guest is Alison Green, founder of Ask a Manager and the author of Ask a Manager, How to Navigate Clueless Colleagues, Lunch-Stealing Bosses, and the Rest of Your Life at Work. I'm a huge fan, and during our interview, you can hear how much I have a girl crush. And I just adore Allison for her pragmatic, no-nonsense approach to answering your questions on our website about awkward workplace problems. So sit tight and we'll be right back with Allison Green on Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. So is the way you think
0: about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's Fix Work
1: Together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. Lori Rudiman here. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I have a great guest today. It's my dear friend, Allison Green. Allison, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Oh, good. I'm fantastic. You know, it's so nice to connect in real life. You know, I've been a fan of yours for so many years. I feel like you're one of the original bloggers on the internet, although you're not that old. I know that. So how long have you had your Ask a Manager website?
2: It has been 11 years. I started in 2007. Um, I think you were blogging around that same time, were you not?
1: I was, I was. I started anonymously blogging in 2004, but it was really just me keeping a diary. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I had pizza and I'm traveling because that's what the internet used to be. And now it's, I don't know, you tell me, what do you think blogging is now? (laughs) <laughs> I have no idea. I keep
2: reading that blogging is dead, but that has not been my experience with it at all. Yeah, I, um, so. I do think stuff has changed, though. And even with just that time period, I mean, starting in 2007, a year later was the recession. And so pretty early on, I saw that change in my mail and, you know, just with people in pretty dire situations career-wise, especially like new or more recent grads who graduated into that. Um, so I think I, in some ways, started blogging at a hard time, and in some ways, maybe it was a, a great time to be doing it.
1: Yeah. And you did you still have a job back then when you were blogging at that time? <laughs> I
2: did. I did still have a job. And actually, like you, I st- when I started the site, I was doing it anonymously, in part because I still had a regular full-time job. And I thought, well, that would be really weird to know that your manager was writing this advice blog about how to manage and how to have a manager. And I just thought it would make people feel a little awkward. Um, But then about a year into it, I dropped the anonymity. And I didn't know how that would go. But it ended up being okay.
1: Well, that's great. And um, from there, I mean, your career has just flourished. You're on the internet. You've written a new book called Ask a Manager. And I think about the work that you've done over the past decade giving solid, pragmatic, common sense career advice. And I don't know what sets you apart except for your excellence because everybody else thinks they're good at giving career advice and they're not very good at it. So can you talk about that distinction? Why is everybody really comfortable giving career advice and it's not usually good? And then why are people so bad (laughs) often at receiving it?
2: At Receiving it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you see that more broadly than just career advice. I think it's probably true of advice in general. I mean, it's pretty easy to look at someone else's life or someone else's relationships and say, oh, this would go better if you were doing X or Y. But most of us have a lot of trouble acting on that same sort of rational advice when it comes to our own lives. So I think career advice is no different. But the other factor at play, I think, is that we've all had jobs. And so we all have opinions on how those jobs should work. I think it's kind of like how I've noticed that Ask a Manager that when I run a letter on a topic that everyone has experience with, like dealing with a really messy office kitchen or like, figuring out what clothes to wear to work, those topics get a huge amount of comments. And I think it's not because they're necessarily the most important, compelling topics, but they're ones that everyone has experience with. And so we'll have opinions on
1: So I wonder if there's been a post out there that stumped you. Like, can you think of one that was really difficult to answer and maybe one that didn't get so many comments because it was just a challenging situation or something difficult to read?
2: Yeah, I have letters that stump me all the time, and usually I don't run them. Um, Occasionally I do, and I'll say, you know, (laughs) these are just initial thoughts. Take them for what they are. Um, I have a whole folder. I was actually just saying this at an event that I was at. I don't know if this is something I should be divulging or not, but I have a whole folder of letters that I think are unanswerable. There's just no good advice to give. And I was going through it recently and Lori, like 75% of them are about farting in
1: the office. Oh God. And actually there are (laughs) answers to that, right? (laughs) I mean, it happens and you know, those are difficult conversations, but this is not a big deal. (laughs) Well, I, I, yeah. I think where it becomes
2: unanswerable is when it's like your cube mate who's doing it constantly and is maybe unresponsive to hints or polite requests. And then people are just like stuck in this unpleasant, odorous environment. (laughs) I have no answers for those people, but I do have a folder full of their complaints.
1: Oh my God. Wow. That is just so weird. Well, I guess there's a universal thing that we all have in our office and that is someone who's gassy. I can think of a time in my work life where I had that as well. Well, I wonder about the best advice that you've ever been given. Like has someone really swooped in and given you advice that's helped you out in life?
2: I think to pick your battles. Um, Really early in my career, I thought I had to take on everything that was annoying or unfair, not just at work, but at life, in life in general. And I spent a lot of time and capital complaining to coworkers and getting really huffy about things that weren't ideal, but also weren't really worth putting a ton of energy into. And I think it takes some time and experience to figure out which battles you should pick, or at least it did for me. Um, I wish I'd listened to that advice earlier on.
1: Yeah, those are hard lessons to learn because you're right. When you're younger or new to a career or new to an industry, you don't know what you don't know and you want to impress people, you're ego driven, and it's hard not to take on the world. I mean, that's part of the beauty of youth. You have that kind of energy. But now that I'm 43 years old, I I don't pick any battles anymore. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't
2: have the energy happened. anymore. But yeah, at that age, like early 20s, you're so full of like, righteous indignation and, and often rightfully so. But being right about something is not always the same as Needing to act on something. And I think maybe that distinction was lost on me for a bit longer than it should have been.
1: Oh, I love that. Well, is there advice that was given to you that you fully ignored and you're like, damn it, I should have listened? <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: oh, that's a great question. I have been told that I don't suffer fools gladly, and I bet you're the same way. And oh, yeah. I have been encouraged to to disguise that a little bit more, and that probably is good advice.
1: Yeah, that um, is, like it, a poker it, face, right?
2: Yeah, to have more of a poker face. Um, that is not a strength of mine. And there is a part of me that feels like it's a virtue, yeah. <laughs> but I know that it's not really a virtue. Uh, so well, a I, virtue I could do a better amongst, job of taking yeah. that advice.
1: Among cynical people like us, I admire you for that, actually. That's really great. (laughs) That's right. See? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've been told to be less smiley. And I I feel two ways about that. One is I'm a woman, so don't tell me when to and when not to smile. But I I get it. I am very smiley. And I think in a professional environment, I always want to reassure people. And I, I just want people to feel good about themselves. And so when I worked in human resources... I would smile and try to make people smile at really inappropriate times. And it was like, Lori, don't smile, you know, tamp it down. And and I get it, but I don't know. I'm both cynical and bubbly, Allison. It's weird. It's, It's confusing, I think. So,
2: I think that's a lovely combination.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Well, you know, you've written quite a bit over the years on leadership, and I've had a few guests on who have like a leadership model or universal attributes of leadership and i wonder where you lie on the leadership spectrum do you think there are universal aspects of a great leader
2: yeah i mean i think different people will bring their own style to it and that's good but that there are some things that have to be there like you have to have a real drive and commitment to get results and You have to have a focus on, like, what those results really are versus just appearances. Um, You have to have a willingness to make tough decisions and have hard conversations. Um, And what else? Humility. I mean, a recognition that you don't have all the answers and to constantly be in learning mode and a willingness to admit when you're wrong. I guess it all falls under humility. But beyond that, I think so much of it is about not doing the bad stuff, you know, like don't yell at people and don't treat them like untrustworthy children and don't hide the message when you need someone doing something differently. All that stuff that like shouldn't be hard to get right in theory, but in practice really can be.
1: Do you have any theories on why it's hard to get right? Because we mess up the basic things over and over again when it comes to leadership and management. Do you know why that is?
2: (laughs) We do. I don't know why it is. I have two theories. One is, that we do a terrible job of training people to lead and manage. And I mean, I come from the nonprofit sector and there is very little management training happening in nonprofits. You're kind of thrown in usually because you were good at something else. You were good at writing or you were a good fundraiser or you were a good organizer. And so now we're going to make you a manager even though that's a completely different skill set and we're not going to tell you what to how to do it. We're not going to give you any coaching or mentoring. And your role models, the managers you've had previously, may not be the best role models for it. And so people kind of figure it out as they go. I mean, I know so many managers, myself included, who will tell you that everything they learned about managing, they learned from messing it up and and learning from those mistakes what not to do. So I think there's like just a crisis of lack of management training. But the other piece I think is that we as humans, really hate conflict for the most part and are scared of having hard conversations or telling someone that they're not meeting our expectations. And so much of bad management is about not being clear about those things.
1: Oh, you're so right about conflict. I mean, conflict avoidance is one of those mistakes that people make over and over and over again, and they know better. They know to have a direct conversation, but they just can't. I wonder if you have an example of a difficult conversation that you had as a manager that actually turned out to be okay because you were brave and you weren't conflict avoidant. Can you think of a time like that?
2: Yeah, I don't know that I would say this one had a happy ending. It had the right ending. Oh, there you
1: um, there you go. That would be too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was managing someone, and I just could not. She was a, like in an admin role, and I just couldn't shake the feeling that she was lying about things, like small things uh-huh. here and there, things that didn't really carry a lot of weight. And I just couldn't shake the feeling, and I didn't know how to handle it, um, especially when you don't have like really concrete evidence that you can bring to someone, and one day she told me that, this is a terrible story. I don't know. <laughs> <No. this>. um, <laughs> one day she told me that, that she had sent something to a vendor. I think it was a printer and that, something about the context. I knew that she hadn't done it. And I said to her, I'm going to feel I just decided the only way to handle this is to just put it out there. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but it's not good for her or for me to go on having these suspicions in my head. We need to just talk about this and figure it out. And so I said to her, if I'm wrong about this, I'm going to profusely apologize to you. But that doesn't sound right to me. Can you show me in your email where this it, this email is that you sent to them? Oh, and she like turned pale, confessed that she hadn't done it. Um, we had a conversation about it. I said, my sense is that this has been going on for a while. I understand where it might be coming from. You feel like you're under a lot of pressure, <laughs> but you, you, I can't, someone working for me where I'm doubting your word, I've got to be able to take you at your word. Um, so it, it did not end well. I did end up letting her go over it, which is why I said this is like not the happiest of stories, but I had agonized for so long about how to handle that. And it wasn't, it just didn't seem straightforward because I didn't know If I was right, and I, it turned out that I was, but I didn't know it going into it. And I think for managers, sometimes you feel like, oh, well, I have to be able to prove this. Like I need to use the same standard I would use in a court of law, or I I can't, it's not even fair for me to bring it up. And I think sometimes you can just sit down and talk about it.
1: I love it. I love your approach to that because right off the bat, you were deferential and you were polite and you weren't necessarily accusatory. And you said, you know, I will apologize profusely if I'm wrong. But I think there's just this nice flow of communication in that example. And so it makes me think that. if managers could like get together and have a support group and train themselves on how to communicate at these high pressure moments, that would be so ideal. And I see some of that actually playing out in your comments section. You've got a lot of peer-to-peer coaching. When you write something in the comments, people are, I don't know, engaging with one another, supporting one another. And it's unlike any other website really that still exists on the internet. What do you think about the community on your website? Are you like really proud of that?
2: I am really proud of it. I don't know how that came about. I mean, normally I would tell people never read the comments. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> on other side, but, yes, correct. On other <laughs> side, although you have good commenters too. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, it's a a kind and smart group, which are two things that are hard to find on the internet. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, that people do a lot of sharing their experiences and, and giving their own advice. And I think you're right, managers so rarely have anywhere they can go to talk about this stuff and bounce ideas off of more experienced managers and get insight from other people. And it's it's nice to have a place where people can go to do that.
1: Absolutely. It's just so interesting. Well, everybody, after the break, when we come back, we're going to talk to Allison Green about her new book called Ask a Manager. And we're also going to talk about optimism, pessimism at work, and really some of the crazy stories that she has on her website. So sit tight. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. You know I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now, I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on.
0: I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world even if you haven't been trying,
1: I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Hey, everybody, welcome back. This is Let's Fix Work, and I'm Lori Rudeman, and I'm here today with my dear friend, Allison Green. Allison, are you ready for the second half of the show? I am ready. All right. Well, you have a new book out. Congratulations, first and foremost. Thank you. I'm excited about it. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, I wonder what are the myths of managing people? And really baked into that, I know one myth is that you have to be a people person to manage people. So can you, can you talk about that, whether that's true or false? I do not
2: think you need to be a people person in the extrovert sense. I do think you have to like your staff though. Even if you don't like anyone else, you have to like your staff.
1: And I'm, d- I'm you doomed be... by the way. So I just to... <laughs> I,
2: and I also think you have to be willing to deal with people, other people enough you're able to do all the pieces of your job that will require that i mean if you hide in your office because you find that painful or annoying you're probably not going to do the job well but i i mean i think you can have a more subdued personality and be a little quieter and be introverted and still be an effective manager as long as you are willing to make yourself have this conversation.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I think uh, about myths around management, and they are often built around this notion that you have to be an extrovert, but there are others like, um, I don't know, there's this whole servant leadership mode out there. Or you have to love the people who work for you, or you have to be a coach and fully invested in their outcomes. Like, what, what do you think about some of the leadership models that are out there right now? And do they ring true to you? Do they ring... You know, are they practical?
2: I, I mean, I would say parts of that ring true. I don't think I think you need to be invested in the outcomes of the work. And often one way to get there is to be invested in your people's growth and professional development. But it's sort of a means to an end. I mean, that sounds very Machiavellian and I don't mean it to, <laughs> but but really what you are there for is is to achieve work outcomes. And All of the stuff that you do in service of that, like building a great team and giving feedback and developing them and being kind to people, those are all good things to do for the sake of doing them. But but ultimately, they're in service of that larger goal, which is whatever work outcome you're there to achieve.
1: Well, you are so pragmatic. You know, I just spent a day and a half with a bunch of CFOs and they are on Team Allison. They believe that their obligation is to return like a decent rate of return to shareholders, right? I mean, that's what they're there for. So they're there to make money. They're there to increase revenue uh, and profitability. But then there are all these HR professionals out there and all of these motivational speakers out there who really believe that a manager's function is to change somebody's life. And you see this in books and materials out there. And I would imagine your book doesn't necessarily take that point of view, right? You're not out there saying you have an obligation to intervene and change somebody's outlook, their perspective, their personality. I I don't hear that from you. (laughs)
2: No, that is not in my book. Um, I don't think most people want their managers to change their lives. I don't think that's what people are looking for from their bosses. I think people want fair, transparent, Accessible bosses who have clear expectations and tell them how their success will be measured and give them useful feedback And if in that process a manager you develop the kind of rapport and relationship with a manager where it does end up changing your life That's great, but I don't think that's what managers are there for.
1: Yeah, I love that I think some of that has a real paternalistic feel to me You know, it feels like your dad or your mom is going to swoop in and manage you and i'm a little bit more I wouldn't call myself a libertarian, but I believe in owning my own employee experience And while I want a good boss who has all of those attributes that you just described, I also think I'm partially responsible for the attitude that I bring to work, my work ethic, I'm responsible for my experiences, but I don't know, maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know, what do you think about that? No,
2: I don't think you're alone in that at all. I think that's exactly right. Um, And I I think people who perform at a high level are more likely to say that. Than not. I mean, I do think there's. I don't want to sound dismissive of the idea that there's real value in in developing your employees and getting the best out yeah. of them and all of that. There is real value in that. But ultimately, all of the reasons to be the kind of manager that people like. It's. I mean, because in the long term, you've got to do that stuff if you want to be able to have a strong team and if you want to be the, the man, the kind of manager who's able to attract and retain good talent. So, I mean, if you only cared about what kind of results you got in the short term, you could throw all that away and you could be a jerk and you could yell at people. I mean, I wouldn't recommend this, but (laughs) but theoretically (laughs) you could. You could not care about people's development at all. And you could probably get some results in the short term, largely based on fear. Um, But but usually we're not in a situation where it's enough to just care about the short term. You need to get results in the long term. And given that, you have to be kind to people. You have to be empathetic. You have to be thoughtful about the way that you manage.
1: So good. So smart. And you know, I think there's probably a place out there for um, people who need that kind of deep touch and there are managers out there who do that. But I don't think it's pragmatic or applicable or even scales across most companies and most businesses. So I wonder, um, people out there who are new managers or even employees, there are all these secrets around management. I wonder, what do you think managers wish employees knew?
2: So many things. Um, I think a big one is that you can speak up when you disagree with something. I mean, not with every manager, certainly. There are some managers who just want, like, yes men and yes women. But with decent managers, if you disagree with a decision or a policy or you're unhappy about something, I think so often people feel like, oh, I'm just supposed to stay silent about this because of hierarchy. But you can, in most cases, you can talk to your boss about it as long as you do it in a constructive way where you're not making demands. I mean, good managers want... To know what you're thinking Uh, to a point, of course, I mean, there are limits on that. And again, you want to, you want to pick your battles. But I feel like so many of my letter writers, I pick up on this feeling that they're, they're just supposed to stay quiet, that no one is interested in hearing what they think. And that's not
1: true. No, you know, we talk about learned helplessness a lot on this podcast, people really feeling stuck. And why even try if all they're going to do is fail again, for whatever reason, maybe the recession has beat them down, or they bring their own family of origin trauma to work. I don't know what it is. Do you have an example where somebody brought something to you and it was a little awkward, but eventually there was a good outcome?
2: Hmm. Give me a minute to think about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, there have been times in my life where I haven't asked for things that I really needed and I regret it. You know, I am five feet tall. I'm little. And I've told the story before that I worked my entire career and I never had a chair that fit me. Honest to God, I never thought to make waves enough and ask for a Herman Miller chair or whatever stupid chair we had at work that was my size because I thought my boss might say no or it would look like I was asking for too much and it would have made all the difference. I always had back pain. I was never comfortable in a desk and I'm sure my boss would have been like, heck yeah, order whatever you want. We're Pfizer, right? We spend money like anything, but I never felt brave enough to ask for what I needed. So I, I don't know. Has anybody ever asked you for something they needed?
2: Yeah, actually, here is one that I bet was really hard to ask for. Um, I, this was years ago, I managed someone who I could tell was regularly getting kind of emotional when we were having check-ins and talking about how work stuff was going, and I was giving her feedback on projects, like just, not like outright weeping, but (laughs) but like getting a little teary, and it was happening a bunch of times to the point that I was Starting to think about like hmm, what's what's going on is like is there something about the feedback that I'm giving her that she's finding particularly upsetting, and she actually talked to me one day and told me that she had been she had some medical situation that was going on. They were trying to get her treatment right, and meanwhile it was just really messing with her hormonally, and it was making her emotional and weepy. And she said, I'm really embarrassed by it. Um, Would you be willing to give me feedback in writing for the next few weeks instead of doing it face to face? Because I feel mortified sitting there uh, with with tears in my eyes. Um, So I said, yeah, of course, of course we can do that. I mean, that's not ideal. You don't want to be confined to only giving someone, I mean, because you want to have a dialogue and you want to have a back and forth. And what we settled on was that we would, the initial feedback would be in writing and she would have time to think about it and process it. And then whatever back and forth we needed to have, we could then do a couple of days later. And that turned out to be what she needed. She just, it was something about like being hit with it in the moment that was setting her off.
1: Yeah. So it was a
2: little bit more work. I mean, it's harder to put feedback in writing. You have to like really pick the words in a different way. Um, but but that worked and it got it under control. But oh, I think so I bet that was really embarrassing to ask for. I mean, I can imagine myself in those shoes being just really not wanting to make that request. And yeah. I have a lot of respect for her that she did it.
1: I do too. And I have a lot of respect for you that you considered it because I think some managers would initially go, what is this? This is crazy. But, you know, people have moments in their lives. They have physical and emotional moments. And Good for you for recognizing that. That's really cool.
2: Well, good for her for saying it. Because again, like I can totally imagine getting that letter at Ask a Manager from <laughs> someone who was in her shoes and mortified and who like, wouldn't at all think it was a possibility to just ask for what they needed.
1: Well, you know, because you've been in these situations, I think it makes you such an astute writer. And I noticed when I read your book that it differs a little bit from the traditional format of blog to book, because many bloggers will take their old posts and just convert it into a book. But you've done something a little bit different, I think, in that you've written really a handbook for managers and even a handbook for employees who want to understand the world of work and the world of management. So can you tell me a little bit about your approach with this book and maybe what readers could expect?
2: Yeah. You know, when I was initially thinking about doing a book, I thought like, ooh, maybe I could just take a bunch of old blog posts and cobble them together and that wouldn't be nearly as much work. Um and believe me, there were times when I was writing this thing when I really wished that I had taken that, <laughs> that approach to it. <laughs> um, but I just thought, like, this stuff is all available on my website for free for anyone who cares to go digging through my archives. I want I wanted to give something new if people are paying for it. So I thought, you know, the theme that I have seen over and over in the decade of writing the site is that when people need to have a difficult conversation, they don't do it, or at least they hesitate to do it because they don't know what to say. And I also have seen that if I can offer them specific language to use, then this thing that originally felt like an unbearably unpleasant conversation suddenly feels possible. And I think that a lot of the time it's because the, the version that they were imagining in their head was kind of aggressive or adversarial, but if they get wording where they see like, oh, it doesn't have to be adversarial, there's a way to do this where it won't destroy the relationship. Then they're more willing to do it. And so the idea with the book was to take on 200 difficult conversations that you might need to have at work during your career and give you language to do it. And it has like a particular focus on Awkward and kind of cringy conversations that people dread the most. So, like, what to say if you lost your cool and you snapped at a coworker, or you got drunk at the company holiday party, or everyone expects you to chip in for really expensive shower gifts and you can't afford it. It's so like all the awkward stuff that people agonize over because they just don't know the wording.
1: I love it. You know, there have been so many awkward moments in my own career that I, you know, like too many to count. I wonder if you have a particularly awkward moment that comes to mind where you think like, Oh, I wish I would have had this book available because believe me, (laughs) I have been asked to chip into so many baby shower presents, especially when I made no money, right? I made zero money in the early days of working in human resources. Plus I never had a kid. And I always thought, what are the chances that I'm going to get this money back? You know, probably none. So I always had a chip on my shoulder about that. But I wonder if there's anything that comes to mind in your career where you're like, man, my book would have been so helpful.
2: I have had so many awkward moments. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I actually have kind of a love of awkward. Like, I think awkwardness, if we can step back from it, is actually really funny. So for the most part, I've just tried to embrace the awkwardness that comes with being me um, and, and being human, um, but let me think. What have what are some particularly mortifying moments that I've had? Um, you know, when I <laughs> I don't know that this is one where having the right language would have helped. But when I first went out on my own as a consultant and was starting to take on clients, it might have been like my very first meeting with a client, and I. We had met at a, like a Starbucks and I had had this, this massive container of iced tea, like just huge, like the size of a human head. And I hadn't drank any of it during our meeting because we were busy talking. And when we went to say goodbye, I went to put up my hand, shake her hand, and I don't know what happened, but I ended up dumping the entire massive Aww. container of iced tea tea all know. over her. I and I did not handle it smoothly. I think I laughed <laughs> because, it, because it is funny, but like probably the, you don't, like you're not thrilled if the person who just dumped you is no. laughing. <laughs> um, it was not good.
1: Oh, that's really awkward. Well, I love that you love awkward. I mean, there are more than enough awkward stories on your website alone just to get people going. So why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on the internet? You've been there forever, but let's, let's remind them.
2: I am at askamanager.org, and I'm posting all the time, so send in your letters, and then you can also read me at Slate and at New York Magazine.
1: Excellent. Well, Allison, congratulations on all of your success. It's been really fun to watch your career blossom in our industry, and I just really admire you. So thanks for being a guest on Let's Fix Work.
2: Oh, thank you, Lori. It was great fun to be here.
1: All right. We'll see you soon. And everybody, we'll be right back after the break. Hey. Hey. Are you ready to podcast like a pro?
0: Then you need a secret weapon, someone who can make it easy, where all you have to do is show up and be the host. At One Stone Creative, that's what we do. Everything. Yeah, everything. Imagine, every time you sit down to record, you know what your topic is. You want a script? We can do that too. Then you record it, drop it in a folder, and that's it. Our team will take it from there production, show notes, uploads, blog posts, social media assets, swipe copy, like I said, everything. Book a call with a podcast strategist today. Just go to onestonecreative.net slash podcast. That's onestonecreative.net slash podcast. And we'll take it from there.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alison Green. Boy, I love that woman. And you can find her at Ask a Manager almost everywhere on the internet. And we'll have her links in our show notes. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino and Megan Doherty make the show great. And Gerson Lafleche is our awesome content and marketing specialist. Now, listen, we would love for you to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. So find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you'd like to connect with me, I'm at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's
0: Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no holds barred honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? Download it for free at lorirudeman.com DIYHR.